Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. LAS Studios. When I first started working on this podcast, I took a look through all my old research from my book, AstroTurf, The Private Life of Rocket Science. I wanted to see if I could find anything useful. Oh, this is also, um, I think this is a treatment for a movie that he wrote. Oh, and this, I, all these yellow ones, I think, must be um, Armelina. I came across a picture of myself from when I visited Frank Molina's home in France. It was 1999. He had died in 1981, but his wife, Marjorie Duckworth Molina, was kind enough to show me around. This one's a tiny bit. <laughs> this is Frank Molina's office in Paris with, um, you know, his magazine was eventually called Leonardo, so it's under this giant self-portrait or, you know, poster size uh, reproduction of Leonardo's portrait of himself. And it's, well, basically, it, it looks about as cluttered as my office where you're standing now. And it looks like I'm ripping something off. But in fact, I was merely, you know, looking through material in his office. Looking at this picture of myself all these years ago in my existentialist wannabe leather jacket, amid dog-eared notebooks, brushes, and paint tubes, seemingly unaltered since his death, it struck me how many similarities there are between Molina and Leonardo da Vinci. We know from his letters that Molina fancied himself quite the Renaissance man and intentionally curated his correspondence so as to appear that way in history. Scientist, artist musician, creator of weapons. It's no wonder he chose to have Leonardo gazing down at him all those years, watching him work. The life of Frank Molina essentially has two faces, two sides. There's the day-to-day -day life of the engineer, rocketry research, all the volatile experiments. And then there's the other part. I call it the idealist side the man who's got ideas about people and society that extend beyond campus that maybe he doesn't share with everybody in the lab. Ideas about principles and beliefs, how the world can and even should be made better. Ideas that'll get Molina into a lot more trouble down the road than any explosions at Caltech. I'm M.G. Lord. This is season one of L.A. Made blood, sweat, and rockets. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day -day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge.
Let's start with the first Molina, the scientist. Here's Fraser McDonald, lecturer at the University of Edinburgh and author of Escape from Earth, A Secret History of the Space Rocket. Molina's childhood, I think, is happy. He emerges as this quite ambitious, clever, you know, gifted young person. But he is also shows evidence of being a bit of a free spirit. It's hard to know where that ambition comes from. I think he is, he draws a lot from his experience of actually spending time in Moravia. So between the ages of seven and 12, um, Frank Molina and his family went back to Moravia and then came back again to Brenham, Texas. And I think that gives him a more international perspective on the world. And he recognizes that the world's a bigger, bigger place than Brenham. Not only bigger than Brenham or Texas or even the United States, perhaps bigger than what's terrestrially known. Frank Molina, actually, he was an artist. And this is actually, to me, is a very intriguing part of it. That's Maury Garib, the chair of the aerospace department at Caltech. And I think that's what von Karman saw. Saw a very young, very energetic, kind of visionary in own sake, an artist that could see beyond just you no know, solid lines of electron, uh, the engineering, you know, then uh, rocketry, and see more than that. Uh, so he would see the future. You know, that uh, I think that was the key for von Karman. At the trusting, you know, the Frank Molina. So let's hold here for a minute. Von Karman is Theodore von Karman from Austria-Hungary, at the time director of the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at Caltech, a.k.a. Galsit. Von Karman is legitimately an engineering genius. He'll be known as one of the 20th century's greatest contributors to aerospace, if not the greatest, and Molina is perhaps his most talented graduate student. He was, became, for me, sort of my second father. That's Molina himself from a conversation he had with historian Mary Terrell in 1978. I don't think we ever uh, had uh, any, what you might say, major disagreement. We didn't always see eye to eye on everything, but it was an extremely congenial uh, type of relationship. Melina quite commonly refers to von Karman as his second father, which, frankly, that's an odd thing to say. Melina has a father back in, uh, you know, back in Brenham. Fraser MacDonald again. But it says something about the nature of the dynamic between von Karman and, and Melina, which is emotionally interdependent, as well as being academically productive. Now, von Karman is a big deal in Pasadena, and Molina quickly benefits from being brought into his circle. Von Karman was notorious for throwing the most incredible parties where you'd have all sorts of you know, actors, and theater people, musicians, uh, writers, of course, an absolute A-list of scientists. You know, he knew Einstein. And so Frank Molina tastes this, he experiences this firsthand, and it just opens a whole different kind of horizon of possibility uh, for him. Among the more significant people von Karman introduces Molina to is Lillian Darcourt. She's 17, a young art student born of French immigrants. She and Molina meet at a formal dance. But I certainly was not looking to get married. However, my parents fell in love with Frank. That was easy. He was a very nice, this was a very nice person, as I told you. 
That's Lillian Darcourt speaking. I interviewed her in 1999, by which time she was an accomplished abstract artist who used the name Jan Wonderman. Then uh, Frank wanted to get married almost right away, and I said, hey, hold it a minute. You know, I'm, I'm just getting to be 18 years old. I don't know if I really want to. I'm in art school. I want to finish that. So he said, I'll give you a year. And uh, to tell you the truth, when I think back on it, we did get married when I was 18, 1939. We married at von Karman's and Phoebus house. And uh, it was all very exciting and so on. I spent several hours with Wonderman in New York recording these conversations as part of my research for my book. So that other voice you'll hear, the Alvin and the Chipmunks voice, is mine, if you can believe it. I cringe when I hear it. Frank had everything planned. That was one thing about him. He had everything planned, including a five-year plan about his life. He was going to be married. He was going to have his Ph.D. He was going to accomplish this. He was going to do that. He was, I would say, kind of rigid, with a nice, beautiful sense of humor, however. I asked Wonderman to help me picture a typical social evening, not one of von Karman's big to-dos, but just an evening at their house, the one she shared with Melina, when some of the Suicide Squad would drop by. They used to play a thing called Kriegspiel, which was even worse than Chip. How do you spell that? K-R-I-E-G-S-P-I-E-L. I mean, yeah, war games. Kriegspiel. Where they turn their backs to each other and each one has a board, and they announce their play, and then the guy, the other person has to remember it. Oh, so that's remember where the characters are? Oh, they're gone. Yeah, right. That was what they loved to play. There were always two of them playing, and then Tien would be in the corner playing his little recorder. Kriegspiel, blind chess. It's as ludicrously difficult as it sounds, and they're playing it to blow off steam. So that was a relaxing evening at home. The rest of the time, nearly all of the time, newly married Molina is nose to the grindstone at work. Here's McDonald again. He is out working in the lab all hours. And, and it's, it's actually, there's just not enough hours in the day to make it all work. Uh, and part of the early problem is that he's got very uncertain funding. There is no funding at the beginning. So the problem of work and, um, and being workaholic is, is, it starts early. You know, Melina is a very, very driven person. That drive means his new marriage, like much of Melina's life, is quickly under strain. Because even when the U.S. military started loosening the purse strings, Melina's stress only increased, and the same for the tension in their marriage. It's something Wonderman and I talked about at length. Finally, when the war came, there was another incentive of getting the thing really working. It was very, very right. important. She's referring to the JADOs, the jet-assisted takeoff engines that Molina and Parsons and the rest of them had sold to the Army. So I tried to tell him I was very unhappy. Well, I can't deal with that now. You'll have to wait until the war is over. I thought that was kind of awful, but he was probably right at the time. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about Frank and women? No, Frank uh, um, voiced the opinion of equality for women and all of that. But I don't think he was altogether willing to 
pay the price to have it be so. For instance, when I was going to art school, he thought that was just fine, you know, great, and I should continue. And as I told you, though, what I found out was that while I was going to art school, I would also be taking on a great many chores in the house that... Um, oh, it wasn't like an even distribution of housework? Oh, God, no, are you kidding? <laughs> Not at all, my dear. But then he was working very hard. You right. have to understand that uh, he, he was very busy. I mean, to expect this man to be washing dishes or something. Right. That and then going shopping. I had to go shopping, marketing, every day after school when it was dark and and I was exhausted. As a matter of fact, at the end of three years, uh, I really became very ill, and uh, it was just too much. We we would we would have to. For instance, he would say to me, "We have to go to Carmen's tonight." Now that was at least once a week, if not sometimes twice a week. To be clear, Melina is referring to von Karman here, not his actual father in Texas. Von Karman in Pasadena was the surrogate mentor, surrogate father, surrogate source of inspiration. So, he was, von Karman was very social? Oh, yes. Von Karman had his students and the people he was working with around him constantly. Uh, and as I said, they had was so many Was he flirtatious? I mean, yes, he was. He was very flirtatious with women, very much so. And uh, how is he as far as the you know women's rights issue thing? Oh, I don't know. I really I have no way of judging it because this is you know that's a subject that wasn't even a subject in those days. Right. I mean, who the heck ever talked about that kind of thing? Um, I don't know. I only know that's a subject that wasn't even a subject in those days. We'll be addressing this more in future episodes. But boy, each time I've re-listened to this interview, that phrase still hits me. Frank and Lillian are realizing they have different ideas about the world. Lillian is studying to be an artist. She isn't interested in having children. She rapidly is becoming disinterested in doing all the housewifey stuff. As for Frank, his own ideas are being tested. But in his case, what seems to have been weighing heaviest on his mind is something more grand, something rooted deep in his conscience, a reluctance to see his work become tools of war. Here's MacDonald again. There's this really interesting line that Frank Molina writes in his high school yearbook, which is, I follow the dictates of my own conscience. And I think that does say something about his... Um, a certain free-spirited character, a willingness to break the mold that his father had otherwise set for him, which is to work within the confines and the structures and the disciplines of the military. But of course, subsequently, Molina then has to deal with the military as a potential funder for his rocket research. He's willing to take military funding because he's terrified about the rise of fascism in Europe, and he wants to build rocket in part to be better able to fight fascism. In the rocketry world, World War II is the game changer. Because in 1943, British intelligence discovers that the Nazis are developing the V-2 missile. I mean, it's like over 40 feet tall, uh, weighs thousands of pounds, and it could launch a one-ton high-explosive warhead about 200 miles in five minutes. Here's Michael Newfeld, 
Senior Curator at the Department of Space History, National Air and Space Museum, Smithsonian Institution. It was a revolutionary change in the development of rocketry. It used liquid propellants rather than older solid propellants. And so that seemed like a huge advance that could change the course of the war. Certainly the German engineers and scientists and the Nazi leadership believed that. In fact, the V-2 was basically a failure militarily. It was an enormously expensive way to loft a one-ton bomb. So it was very spectacular, but it was not war-changing. Now the trouble is, the Allies don't know that yet. They think the V-2 could change the course of the war. The question was now, how do we greatly accelerate our spending on rocketry? And so Army Ordnance, the Ordnance Corps responsible for Army weapons, uh, began putting a lot more money into rocketry in 1943-44. That allowed Caltech to form the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1944. So right at the end of the war, guided missiles really became an interesting topic to the American military and that of all the other Allied powers. Von Karman and Molina become the co-founders of JPL. Meanwhile, Jack Parsons and Ed Foreman, two of the original members of the Suicide Squad, are fading from view. Here's Fraser McDonald again. Parsons and Foreman just recede. They, they're needed less. They fit in less, obviously. And every institutional transformation, Molina's authority is increasing. So in every sense, Parsons and Foreman, where they fit in really well to the early idea of this tight little collaboration between three kind of young people just trying things out, that does not work in institutions like, even like Caltech, where, you know, you've got a certain source of structure, far less something like JPL, where Parsons and Foreman are nowhere near JPL. That is to say, Molina has a professional, as it were, managerial responsibility and authority over Parsons and Foreman, which they resent. Like, they they hate that, that what started as a relationship of equals morphs into something uh, uh, much more like, you know, line manager. And that's not comfortable. The Suicide Squad, our little band of brothers, is coming apart. But it's not just because of Molina's increasing authority over Parsons and Foreman. It's also because of Molina's involvement in a secret political club off campus. That's right. It's time to talk about the other side of Molina, the communist. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a point in American history where it was terribly popular to be a communist. But there have been points when it was fashionable, particularly in places like Los Angeles or New York, where it was seen, in fact, as one of the more rational political stances you could take. Molina was a communist, paradoxically, because he was a scientist. So I think Molina thought that capitalism was basically 
kind of chaotic and inefficient system, why not organize society along more rational, ordered scientific lines so that uh, everybody would have everything they needed? What are the basic tenets of communism? Let's have a primer. One, property is publicly owned rather than private. Two, everyone works and each person is paid according to their needs and abilities. I mean, Karl Marx wasn't short on words, but for a basic understanding, that's generally it. Molina seems to have been attracted to communism as a set of ideas. Of course, in the real world, it's a very complex thing. It is often given birth to extremes of state control. You picture East Germany, the Soviet Union, modern China. But it's also more than that. I think that Molina had practical reasons for being interested in communism. And one was anti-fascism. Molina was terrified of the rise of fascism in Europe. Remember, Molina comes to Caltech in the 1930s, pre-World War II. Molina and his mentor, von Karman, their families have had direct experience with what fascism really means. His own family had experience of Hitler marching through Sudetenland and what was happening in Czech Republic. And so he knew that there was no possibility of just ignoring fascism and hoping it would go away. It was something that had to be countered, right? And as far as he could see, within the political landscape of late 1930s United States, the only political group that was in any way serious about this was the Communist Party. So that commitment to anti-fascism is really what drives him, as well, of course, as a commitment to equality, to pursuing the right to organized labor, to the right to universal health care, the commitment he had to ending racial segregation. Again, if you were in any way serious about these sorts of political fights, the Communist Party was the main organization that was, that was pushing these. Molina's communist journey begins at Caltech when he meets a postdoctoral researcher named Sidney Weinbaum. Weinbaum was born in what is now the Ukraine, had come to work with Linus Pauling, Nobel-winning biochemist in, in Caltech. And that's quite aside from the fact that Weinbaum was a chess champion, concert-level pianist, spoke four languages. He really was a, a kind of singular figure on, on campus. But as well as being kind of fascinated, like Molina was, and, you know, different things, science, politics, art, music, and so on, Molina was attracted to Weinbaum as a friend. It's just like, as, you know, brilliant, educated. But also he liked the seriousness that Weinbaum had at thinking about how can they change the world, right? That was, that was its constituent interest. Similar minds, similar backgrounds, similar worldliness. So it's quite understandable, at least for me, that when Weinbaum starts to invite Molina to events, nights of debate and conversation, when he recruits him to the CP, the Communist Party, Molina's interests, his beliefs, not to mention his growing friendship with Weinbaum, all lead him to say yes. The specific name is professional unit number 122. You'll hear that name quite a bit going forward. The organization of the CP at that time was these little groups of, of workers, of activists. And most units would be, you know, out leafleting or proselytizing in one way or other. Unit 122 was not like that. It was a, it was a professional unit. 
And actually, exactly why it existed is a little bit murky. Um, it, 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 they certainly didn't get their hands dirty with a lot of activist work. They would sometimes talk about issues in the news or current affairs or what was happening in Europe, concerned about Spanish Civil War, say, or what was happening in, among trade unions in L.A., now, Melina isn't the only Suicide Squad member invited to attend. Jack Parsons, our wealthy wunderkind, digs all the exclusivity involved, whereas Ed Foreman, Parsons' best friend, wants nothing to do with it. Then there's Chen Shushen, a young man who deliberately left China to study at MIT, then Caltech. He does attend some of Weinbaum's evenings but he seems to have done so mainly because they're school buddies. Obviously, this wasn't your typical book club or whatever. You know, it's very hard for me to know how much of this I should talk about and not. This is Lillian Wonderman again, Frank Molina's first wife, from the interview I conducted with her in 1999. Well, I think it certainly was intellectual. There's no question about it because, you know, it was more intellectualized than it was political. Now, how could it not have been with a bunch like that? You know, you can imagine... It's quite difficult to understand what it meant to be a member of the Communist Party at the time that Frank Molina joined in November 1938. So what was striking about the Communist Party is there are these two kind of separate realities to it. On the one hand, it's this kind of grassroots organisation of committed young social activists. On the other hand, the Communist Party is a completely hierarchical, authoritarian organization structured by people far removed from Los Angeles to gather intelligence and to develop a network for espionage. It's not a kind of either or, it's both and. And, and that's really the complexity of trying to understand the commitment of these young people to the Communist Party is that it wasn't clear to them the ways in which the party would be used in deeply cynical ways for intelligence gathering. It was not clear to them. To be a member of the Communist Party, to attend meetings in the late 1930s, it's perhaps not something at that point to be ashamed about intellectually. Not if you care about social justice. Not if you enjoy a spirited evening of debate and music. I mean, how different is it really from those parties at von Karman's? Here's what happens. One, Molina joins the party and pays his dues. Sometimes he even runs the meetings himself. Two, Parsons shows up on occasion. I mean, what a cultist doesn't love an exclusive gathering. Three, as I said, Chen attends also under the name John Decker. All the members had pseudonyms, partly because going on the record about being a communist may be unwise. The fact is that if you had any activist in labor unions, it would be completely normal to be beaten by LAPD, to be brutalized by white vigilantes. So precisely because of that atmosphere of political repression, people had to be clandestine and secretive. And it's precisely that character that made the Communist Party an absolutely ideal vehicle for collecting intelligence by, um, by the CP leadership. And thus, a secret grows within the squad. Perhaps not the best kept secret, but it's a secret. 
something you don't bring up at school or work, something you might deny if somebody asks. That way, it's something you also don't need to worry about. It barely exists. Frank Molina contained multitudes, but the more I think about it, with all the people I've talked to, I think there is something that ties it all together, something to fuse the engineer with the political animal, the rocket man with the communist, and that is a sense of utopia. Molina thought of rockets as instruments of science, tools that could help us better understand Earth's atmosphere and ultimately the rest of the solar system. He dedicated his life to scientific research, and he recoiled at the thought of his work being weaponized. Frank Molina, from small-town Texas to big-city Southern California, had the soul of an artist and the mind of an engineer. And he had the background and life experience, even at that age, to know those two things could live in the same body. To my mind, all this speaks of a man whose ideals compelled him to think outside his own interests, who wanted the best for everyone, not just himself. Now compare that to Jack Parsons, everyone's favorite chemist-slash-sex magician, and the philosophy he'll soon come to adopt. Quote, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Unquote. To me, it sounds like a cross between libertarianism and what a cult leader might get tattooed on his neck. In the next episode of Blood, Sweat, and Rockets, you'll hear what I mean. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of L.A. Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Alea Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rosecrans Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at alaus.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Alea Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. LA Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Alea Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. 
independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.